For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Ron Wilhoyt entitled, The Spirit of. Mr. Wilhoyt. Fred, once again, thank you for that prayer. It truly is a privilege to worship God. Truly, it's a privilege to be here on His Sabbath, to hear His Word. But I'll tell you what, speaking about worshiping God, what a wonderful service we had last Sabbath. And we had so many young people involved in a service and presentation of worshiping God with our own little resident Levites carrying in the Ark of the Covenant like they did. I was going to ask if they would do it again, but I guess they've gone down south, as Reg calls it, <clears throat> to that land of Texas for the Sabbath. So what a joy that was to be a part of that. And for those of you who organized that and those of you who were participants in that, I just want to thank you for allowing me the privilege of being part of it also. I thank you very much. And when I think of the children, when I think of the young people, when I see their faces and their desire to be involved in something like that, I have to remember the words of Jesus and his love for children so much so that he used the word millstone around your neck if you don't have the same compassion, love, and nurturing heart and love for the children, especially to see them excited and joyous in singing to God, in reading God's words, and in, in coming up here and talking about the wonderful furnishings of the tabernacle like they did. It was absolutely fantastic. And looking forward to the next one, and I hope there are many more to come. Well, if no one has any objections, I, my mind was on David before the service last week, and then with that, my mind got even more on David. So, yes, the mind is still on David. And I want to talk about David a little bit more today and also bring in some aspects of Joshua towards the end of the message. But what I want to do first is I want to begin in Numbers. I want to begin in Numbers chapter 7. Still thinking about this concerning David, what I talked about briefly last week, David's heart and David's desires, the emotions that he conveyed it so many times throughout his life. But beginning in Numbers, many years before the time of David, we have the book of Numbers, of course, Bamidbar, from the wilderness, how the chapter begins. But we're going to look at how the book begins, but we're going to read in Numbers 7, verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. It's a little bit different. I've been looking at it just a little bit and doing some certain comparatives, and there's a little bit I like about it in, in some things that it says, but I do a lot of comparative study with the translations, and of course always looking at the original, but I'm going to be reading a little bit of this from the New Living so number 7, verses 1 says, Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. 
Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. Now notice the offering. And they brought their offering before the Most High, six covered carts and twelve oxen. This was the offering. Six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox, and they presented them before the tabernacle. So what do we have? We have six carts, twelve oxen. Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. Now remember from 1 Chronicles 6 that Levi had three sons, correct? Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. So he continues here. Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service. Now we've run out of carts, and we've run out of oxen, but we still have one son left, Kohath. And all of this, of course, the four carts and the eight oxen he gave to Merari according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron. Okay, but notice verse 9. I want you to still think about David a little bit too, okay? <clears throat> But notice verse 9. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none. Carts are gone, oxen are gone. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because theirs was the service of the holy things. The holy things. I call those holy things the sacred furnishings of the tabernacle. But also they were those things that were designed with what? Holes. Holes. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they what? They carried on their shoulders. Okay. To the time of David, a few hundred years later, that's what we briefly talked about last Sabbath. And I've talked about this again. The more sometimes you look at things, these incredible things, there's more that God continues to reveal from these incredible lives of these individuals. So remembering what we have in Numbers, okay, with these three sons, two of them were given carts, and two of them were given oxen, these descendants of these two sons of Levi. But to Kohath, it's not going to be any carts. It's not going to be any oxen. Because according to the pattern, God Almighty showed the furnishings would have poles to be borne upon the shoulders. So we look at 1 Chronicles 13. I'm going to read just a little bit, and I'll have you join me here in a bit. You know the story, and we're going to know it even more. But it was the time that the ark was brought from Kiriath-Jerim. Okay? But when you look at, right before 1 Chronicles 13, you, know, you have the tragic death of Saul and his sons. And then David becomes king of Israel. And right before 1 Chronicles 13 begins, it says that there was joy... In Israel. What a wonderful time. Unity behind David. There's an abundance of food, abundance of wine, and abundance because there was joy in Israel. So, 
Let me read a few verses in 1 Chronicles. It says, David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And when you look at 2 Samuel, approximately 30,000 people. It's a huge assembly. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities, and their common lands that they may gather together to us. The division that was with Saul, the division with Saul trying to kill David, the anointing of David, all of that, it's erased. It's joy in Israel. David wants everybody together. He says in verse 3 of chapter 13, And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. They had not inquired concerning the Ark of the Covenant since the days of Saul. Then all of the assembly said that they would do so for the people, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David gathers everybody together. He says, I've got an idea. I want to get everybody up here. And you know what? If it seems right to you, and it is of God, if it is of God, I want to get the Ark up here. And what does it say in this verse? It says that for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. Now, let's look at 1 Chronicles 13, verse 6. You remember what we read in Numbers? It's pretty exact. And you can go back and read even more to the exactness in which the way Aaron... Moses, Aaron's sons, were to take apart the tabernacle and the furnishings and cover them and set them up so then the sons of Kohath could come out and do their part of the service of the tabernacle. It's a brilliant idea to gather everyone together when there's joy because it will be joyous. Everybody seemed to think it was a great idea to do this. And we have the revelation of the instructions on how to do it, but as you look at First Chronicles 13, verse 6, And David and all Israel went to Baalah of Judah, also called Kiriath-Jerim, to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Eternal, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now look at verse 7. Knowing what we just read in Numbers, in the joyfulness of doing something for God, and in the zeal, just the sheer excitement. And everyone said it was a good idea. I've got 30,000 people. We're all fired up. There's an abundance. There is joy in Israel. What happens? They place the ark of God on a new cart. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house. And of course, we know these two. Uzzah and Ahio. And we know the story. Oxen stumbles. You're going to do the natural thing. That's the ark of God. I'm going to steady it. And we know the result. The result was the death of Uzzah. How quickly a situation can turn from joyfulness to the death of someone when the zeal is there and the desire is there to do something for God 
but yet it's outside of the revelation of how to go about doing it. The result was the death of Uzzah, and of course David was furious. You know, probably that, didn't know if he was petrified out of fear. I'm sure he was. He was so mad he could throw something, probably was, but absolutely just lost in his feelings. And he says, how will I ever have the ark to me? Well, it sits there and rests for three months, right? Obed-Edom's house for three months. And there's a blessing just by having it there at your house. Not only him, his whole household is blessed by having the ark there. And David hears the news, and he says, okay, let's go get it. Let's go get it. So we fast forward three months to 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 2. Notice what David says. 1 Chronicles 15. 1 Chronicles 15, chapter 2. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2 says, Then David, after the incident, three months is not long enough time to go by that where you've forgotten it, right? Not here. Then he commanded no one except the Levites. And we know specifically who those Levites were to be. Kohath. Who were to what? Bear the sacred furnishings upon the shoulder. First Chronicles 15.2, Then he commanded no one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the eternal and to serve him forever. Now let's go to verse 12. First Chronicles 15, verse 12. He said to them, You are the leaders of the Levite families. You must purify yourselves and all your fellow Levites so you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Now, if there's anything you remember today, it's going to be the next verse. It's an incredible story. Just a fascinating story. The story even going so many hundreds of years back to that instruction from the Most High to Aaron. He says, here's what, and to Moses and to Aaron's sons and to Levi and to this, just this order, this established order given, the pattern shown, and you're going to do it this way. But notice what David says in 1 Chronicles 15, 13. He says, Because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. Now, I like the way the New Living Translation says this next. Versions are a little bit different, but if someone really struck me on how the New Living said it, it says, We failed to ask God how to move it properly. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. The counsel of the Most High was rejected. But see, you might think that from that first incident, the first time with the joy in Israel and the excitement and the music, we're going to go get it, we're going to put it on the cart, the oxen stumbles, I put my hand up there and I'm dead. Three months later. We failed because we did not ask God how to move it properly. Now, in between these two incidences, the first ark incident and the second 
successful bringing of the ark to Jerusalem, you have chapter 14. Because after the first incident with the death of Uzzah, you see something presented two times in chapter 14 that we see something that has to be resonant in our own ears and in our hearts and in our minds and it must be something that we begin to do even if we're doing it, doing it more. So in between here, and it's concerning when he was fighting the Philistines. The Philistines and David, interesting relationship when he was running from Saul. It had a dynamic. But now that he was made king of Israel, the Philistines says, eh, let's go get him. When you look at 1 Chronicles 14 in verse 10, so 1 Chronicles 14 in verse 10. Look how he starts that. David asked God. The beautiful thing about David, so many things, his heart, his heart of prayer, his heart given to prayer, his zeal for God. The incredible thing about David is here is his learning from the experience of the revelation not being followed correctly. So in this incident, he says, And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? And you know what happened? He got an answer. Yeah, go ahead. I will hand them over to you. That's one. Okay, but notice here in verse 13. Verse 14. Sorry. First Chronicles 14, 14. I love this. And once again. So in between, trying to get the ark the first time, successfully bringing the ark the second time, the revelation in our scriptures of David asking, and then what? And once again, David asked. Once again, David asked God what to do. And he says, no, don't do it this way. He says, I want you to hear the sounds of the footsteps, I want you to hear the sounds of armies in the tops of the mulberry trees. We're going to do it this way. Very unique, very fantastic. Isn't it amazing how God works? He says, and it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. After these two answers, complete failed attempt. I think of the joy of tens of thousands of people and to have Uzzah die the way he did. Three months go by, he successfully brings it in. But he says this about now, we have to do it correctly. But then in fighting the Philistines, what he learns from this incident, he says what? He inquired of God. And God answered, and it's absolutely brilliant. So the question is, in, in our lives, at which sometimes become routine, somewhat mundane, where you think you've got certain things, ah, this is pretty much figured out, at what level do we feel God is not worthy of seeking counsel? 
Whether it's, well, I don't want to trouble God for this. I think I've kind of got this sorted. I mean, how long have I been doing it? Come on. It's not that big a deal. At what point in our lives would we ever cease from seeking the counsel of God? We're not bringing up the ark. I'm not fighting against Philistines. But I am setting my face to seek his face and enter into his kingdom. So desirous and wanting to enter into the kingdom, what would I not counsel God about? I have to seek his counsel on everything. Because we have the revelation of the experience of what happens when we don't. Now, hundreds of years before this, but not too many years past the time of Numbers concerning the sanctuary and the furnishings, we understand that in the time of Joshua that Jericho was shut up tight. They'd shut her down. They'd closed her down. In the most incredible, beautiful way, the beauty of his holiness, in which Joshua and the people and the priests with the shofar and the ark were to go about making those walls come down is fascinating. Jerusalem, I mean Jericho, Jericho fell, and it fell most profoundly. I would have to say that there was incredible joy with Joshua, with Israel, at seeing what God said would happen exactly like it would if they followed what he said, according to his revelation. But after the fall of Jericho, they next came to this area called Ai, or Ai. I want to look at that just a little bit. Knowing that Jericho had fallen because they had adhered to in exact detail the revelation on how to be successful and they were successful. Think of the exuberance that you know what? I think God's really with us. I think he's truly with us. You see what has happened to Jericho. And you saw that on that seventh circuit, on that seventh day, when we heard the sound of the shofar, that we had a great shout. And the walls fell. But let's move forward just a little bit to this area of I-E, or I, A-I, in Joshua 7. Joshua 7. Joshua 7, verse 2. <clears throat> now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out. Now, 
you remember the, the first time that spies were sent out and the report that came back and what that report resulted in. Okay, here's Joshua. Okay? So they returned to Joshua and said to him, Hey, do not let all the people go up, in verse 3. Don't let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack. We went and checked it out. Let's get it two or 3,000. Let's not bother everybody else. For the people of IE are few. But look at verse 4. Just on the back of Jericho, just on the back of that. Well, check that place out and come back and tell me what you think. Two or three thousand, there's not many there. Sounds good. Verse 4. Well, Joshua listened. It's a good report. That's what you would have wanted to hear. Especially if the memory of the first spies report maybe was still in there. That who do we think we are to go against them? We're grasshoppers. Joshua sends them out all these years later. He says, man, don't worry about it. No, let's not bother most of the people. Two or three thousand, there's not very many of them. That's exactly what you would have wanted to hear. And that's what they acted upon, right? Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. They fled. They fled. Says Joshua tore his clothes. Fell face down right before the Ark of the Covenant dust on your head. And then that same old thing they want to draw back to, the same old thing that we all want to draw back to in some certain situation doesn't quite go how we hoped it might. We want to go, what have you done, God? You brought us now over this side of the Jordan to wipe us out. That's what I talked about all the times in the wanderings. Oh, if we'd have stayed there. Oh, if we'd have just stayed there. Oh, if we'd have just stayed there. God, what have you done now? You brought us out here to kill us. It wasn't enough. We were slaves there. You brought us out here to do it. Now here, after Jericho, sounds good. Let's go. 2,000, 3,000, go do it. What happens? They turn and flee. What do you do? You tear your clothes. You fall face down before the Ark of the Covenant. You go, why did you bring us over to this side? Why couldn't we just stay over there? Dust on your head, it's all over. What are people going to say? What are, what are your enemies going to say? I'll tell you what. <clears throat> in that murmuring spirit, in those moments in your life when you think, oh, what have you done now, God? What does God say in verse 10? Joshua 7, verse 10. Get up. This is Joshua. But you know, face down before God is where we find ourselves at times. But whose counsel 
prompted the two to three thousand to go against that city. The council dynamic was two or three thousand because the people of this place aren't that many. Sounds good, go do it. They fled from them, but now you've got like 36 who have died. Falling on the face and saying, what have you done? You brought us over here to kill us. God says, get up. Why do you lie on your face? It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, after we know that it was determined, Joshua found out. Everybody found out. It was determined that Achan did not adhere to the revelation but had to experience the consequence of ignoring it. When you go in there, I don't want you bringing any of that stuff with you. And it cost not only Achan his life, but 36 others. And almost set the whole thing off the rails. So they understood it was Achan that he did not adhere to the revelation but had to experience the consequence of ignoring it. And it was listening to a good report without asking for the counsel of God. Because it might have seemed, but man, do you see what God just did for us at Jericho? We're just going to march right here. He's still with us. What if... Joshua would have sought the counsel of the Most High before he sent anyone. I believe the revelation would have came, you're going to have to take care of something first. And the whole situation with Achan would have been dealt with, but it would have saved the 36 that died of those that went in to fight against Ai. Don't go until you take care of something first. The counsel of the Most High would have revealed and would have saved them from that experience. But that city fell also, right? I'd encourage you to study onward in Joshua concerning the Gibeonites. <laughs> if, if Miss Noah were to ever do another story, this would be a good one about how the Gibeonites tricked Joshua of making it look like they had traveled a great distance. They were very crafty, very clever because there were specific instructions that God had given Joshua to do as he moved through the land. But just one verse out of Joshua 9 in verse 14. He said, see, we've been traveling for so long. Our shoes are worn out. Our bread's moldy. Our wine is broke through the, the wine skins. We've tried to patch them. We're, we're your servants. We've come from a long way. Joshua says, well, how do I know you're not from around here? We're your servants. Look at us. I'm in rags. Look at my moldy bread. Do you believe me? 
And you've got to read it again. In verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Hopefully those few things that were still good. Maybe there was a little bit of bread. They said about their bread. When we left our home country, this bread was hot. And now it's molded. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel. I'm kind of on a pattern here, okay? They did not ask counsel, and this was Joshua. So they made peace with them and had a covenant also. All right, as I close, I want everyone to look at Isaiah 11. We all need to counsel with the Almighty more than we do for ourselves and for each other. You know, the Holy Spirit within certain church groups and within certain historical councils, teachings and readings, and we feel it's this and we feel it's that. What is the Holy Spirit? Part of a mystery, you can't understand it. I don't want to bore you with it. You're told, what? I'm supposed to know God. What is the Holy Spirit? It's a beautiful piece of scripture I'd like you to think about, which gave rise to the title, the Spirit of dot, dot, dot. Of course, in Isaiah 11, we're talking about the branch, the branch of Jesse. Notice verse 2, Isaiah 11, verse 2, concerning the branch, concerning the Spirit of God. It says, and the Spirit of God shall rest upon him. It's beautiful language here on the Sabbath, that the Spirit of God will rest upon him. It's like that Psalm 91 or 93 the psalm which says, let the beauty of your holiness be upon us. It's just beautiful language. The spirit of the Most High God rest upon him. What is that? I think it's beautifully answered right here. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. And I loved this. It's the spirit of counsel. It's the spirit of counsel. It's who he is. It's how we seek God. It's the spirit of counsel that he wants to give each one of us. And if it's resting upon us in this beautiful language, we must tap into it. Because the psalmist tells us that we should request of God to teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Okay? And you really start to see that you don't, life's not that long. And if you apply yourself and apply your heart to wisdom, it will redeem those years from applying your heart to damage control of not seeking the counsel of God when he offers it to each one of us. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal Most High God. I pray that it rests on each one of us, fills us up, flows out from us, so that we consider every situation, anything, regardless of how trivial you might think it is. Seek his counsel.